Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden. Hi, I'm your host, Misty Little, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 5. It's practically mid-November already, and appears that this week we are going to have our first freeze. Well, probably several freezes. We're a few weeks ahead of schedule. We can usually look for those freezes around the end of November, early December, here where I'm located in North Houston. Of course, some winters we've had them later, and I remember a really nice winter where we didn't have them until January. (laughs) I kind of wish we could go back to that, but that's not the case this year. And frankly, I'm looking forward to a bit of a reset around here. I plan on doing an end-of-year garden review at the end of December, and I will elaborate a little more on that then, but this year kind of started off on the right foot, but quickly fell apart sometime in like June or July. Um, the deer have been relentless as well, and yeah, so a blank slate sounds really delightful at the moment. We did manage to move a lot of mulch um, over the weekend onto two of our flower beds, and we'll attempt to get some more mulch down in the three remaining beds after our Thanksgiving holidays. So there's definitely plenty of work to do out there, and still work to do in the edible garden. Speaking of edible gardens, this week's guest is one you may not be aware of, but is really an OG garden podcaster. Christy Wilhelmy is a gardener, garden consultant, podcaster, and author based out of greater Los Angeles. Her podcast has been around, well, since before the current podcasting boom, where she gave out weekly tip of the week podcasts. Recently, she's reformatted her program to include guest interviews from her friends in the garden world, and she invites them to give their own tip at the end of her episodes. I originally came across Christy via the Root Simple podcast, where she's been a guest several times. In addition to Christy's podcast, I highly recommend you check their episodes out. In the episode today, you'll hear a bit of gardening background from Christy, how she manages to have her hands in multiple gardening avenues, and some interesting topics from composting, raised beds, and bees. There is definitely something for everybody in this episode. You can find the show notes and links to Christy's podcast and website at thegardenpathpodcast.com, and you can find me on Instagram at thegardenpathpodcast. Feel free to drop me an email at thegardenpathpodcast at gmail.com, or you can sign up for the monthly newsletter on the podcast website. In addition, I welcome five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, so if you enjoy the episode, take a few seconds to go leave that five-star rating, and if you feel inclined, write a few words of what you loved about the episode. All right, enjoy! I guess first, maybe, hey, tell us about this Heirloom Festival, because it looks awesome. Like, I saw a lot of a lot more photos this year um, on Instagram than I have in previous years, so. The um, Heirloom Expo. It yeah. is, the, I think this was the seventh or eighth year, forgive me for not knowing exactly when, how long this has been going on, but the Heirloom Expo is put on by Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company, and it is, they call it the Pure Food Festival, and it is running away to the circus for gardeners. <laughs> it is awesome. And I'm, I'm actually going to be posting photos on uh, a wordless Wednesday this week about it. But it's, uh, it's just magical. Heirloom squashes everywhere, heirloom melons everywhere. They do tastings. They do, there are lectures. There are vendors. It's just amazing. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it looks so cool. And um you know, they have the in their catalog every year, like kind of a wrap up of what the the festival or the expo has. But I saw people take photos of the photos that I normally see. And it was just kind of like this surreal moment for a minute. Yeah. So pretty special. It really is. So yeah. 
Yeah, so I guess uh, if you want to get started, maybe even introduce yourself. Um, I mean, you've been around uh, Garden World online for quite a while, but I feel like there's probably a lot of people who don't know who you are. Um, so maybe introduce yourself and can talk about where, you, where you're at and your zone and a little bit of background. Sure. I'm Christy Wilhelmy of Garden Nerd. I live in Los Angeles, California, and we are Zone 10B. We used to be 9B, but to hardiness zones shifting upward later, wow. we are now 10B. And it's starting to feel like we're going to be 11 soon. Oh, uh, my gosh. It's getting more tropical. It's getting more humid. And we're getting rain in July, which we never, ever got before. So wow. for the last four years, we've had, you know, five minutes of rain two days in <laughs> July, which is oh, unheard of. Um, so, uh, yeah. And, oh, and there goes my chicken out the... we have we have chickens i keep bees and i have a garden and i have a community garden plot as well so i specialize in small space biointensive gardening that um uh you know is great for people who live in apartments or small spaces where they don't have a lot of sunshine uh or space so that's my thing so how did you come to gardening did you grow up gardening at all or was it a later in life sort of thing you know i tie discovery of gardening. I did, I did grow up eating peas and carrots out of the garden when my parents grew veggies, but it really connected with it when I uh, became a vegetarian in 1993. And the more I learned about our food system, the more I wanted control over it. And I just, I'm going to grow everything. And then, you know, thus began the voracious learning cycle that has never ended. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think once you go down the rabbit hole, it's just uh, never ending for sure. It's true. It doesn't, it's because that's the music, the, that's the magic about gardening is you can never learn everything. Right. No. Yeah. And I feel like I'm always learning. I feel like I'm, I feel like I master something and then somebody shows me that I don't know everything and I'm like, Oh crap. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's always happening. Um, yeah. So how did you start gardener then? I mean, if you started gardening in 93, how long was it before you were, you know, designing gardens for other people? I started Garden Nerd on the back burner in 2001, and I went, I built it up with a like a t-shirt shop on Cafe Press and mm-hmm. then a blog, and and I started doing blogging in 2006, really 2005, I think was my first entry, but really we'll call it 2006, and then I went full time, left the day job in 2008. And and it came about mostly because I was gardening in my community garden plot and people were like, you know, a lot, you should kind of do this for a living or something. And right. So I'm like, oh, okay. And, and so my life was going in that direction. I was a professional dancer beforehand. And as my body aged out of being able to do that really well, and then some injuries took place, it became more, garden nerd became more and more of my life. Okay. Yeah. And so you do a little bit of everything without you do the garden design and consulting and speaking. I mean, can you talk about some of the, all the facets of your business? Sure. <laughs> sure. It's just, I cast a wide net. Yes. <laughs> Try and catch as many people as I can. So I have, I do classes, consulting, food garden design and installations. So I'm designing spaces. I help people. I coach one-on-one. I teach classes through Santa Monica college here in, on the West side. And, um, and then I have the website, the the web presence, which is the blog. And I also have a YouTube channel and a podcast that I changed the format this year to an interview format 
uh, for 10 years, it was a two minute tip of the week that was like a quick listen to kind of thing on your way. Um, but then I got, I, I published a book that was a compilation of those tips. It was it's called 400 plus tips for organic gardening success. And that is digital only because it has links to all the cool resources and stuff on the podcast. And you can't print that and have it work. <laughs> right. So, so it's digital only and it's, you know, $5.99 on Amazon, shameless promotion. Um, <laughs> promotion. Um, and then, so I also have a formal gardening book that I wrote that was published by Adams Media. And I'm, per- I'm currently in negotiations with a new publishing company to write an updated and, you know, 2.0 version called Gardening for Geeks, you know, 2.0 something, something. We haven't decided on the exact title yet. Right. Um, and so let's see, we've got books. We've, and when I'm writing a novel, I've written a novel. I'm now pitching it to awesome. agents. Uh, and it is set in a community garden, of course. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. what you know. So Right, exactly. So... Uh, those are the those are the wings. Oh, I also we also have a maintenance division. So for vegetable garden maintenance for people who don't have time to take care of their gardens themselves, I have a few people who go out and do that for them. So we're running a lot of angles here. Wow. <laughs> so um, now you said you have other people doing some things for you. Do you have a pretty big crew or is it just kind of like a temporary? How do you work that? That's a good question. I have for my installations, I subcontract a licensed landscape maintenance company and we have a shorthand. We started working together in 2008 and we've been doing this for 10 years, you know, really well. Um, and so they do my construction type stuff where we have to build a garden and irrigation and all of that. For my regular monthly clients, uh, we have some people who want us to come once a week, once every two weeks, once a month, or just seasonally. I have three people currently who cover different areas of Los Angeles mm-hmm. and they work fairly independently. I mostly am the liaison between the client and them and they mostly, um, are handling those clients on their own. And I'm here to troubleshoot if there are problems that can't identify or need help diagnosing issues and solutions. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Like you've done pretty built up a pretty good career from, you know, just enjoying gardening and then switching yeah. from dancing to that. So <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been a long road and I, I feel like it's, I'm nowhere near at the end. Um, uh, I, I eventually want my own gardening show. That's really where I'm headed with this. <laughs> Is that all you think you want it to be local for LA or California or whatever? I want to reach big. the world. <laughs> <laughs> I want to reach everyone. Well, yeah. you know, I think the, uh, the going joke is, uh, you know, HGTV is really just HTV. So if you can get some more gardening in there, that'd be great. <laughs> exactly. And, and for me, it's not about playing to the mainstream. It's about getting people in the mainstream aware of what's going on with regenerative agriculture. And, yeah. you know, I want every household to have a compost bin. Is that too much to ask? I don't <laughs> think so. So, yeah. That's where no, I'm going. I, I completely agree. When I hear our local uh, guy on the radio talking about, I mean, it's just it's just lawn care after lawn care, and it, and this is the questions that are coming from p- the homeowners, and it just drives me nuts. I'm like, I want to hear about everything else that I know about, but it's not yeah. getting shared. So, yes, you I, more voices. Your voice should be out there. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, let's hear it from your lips to the production <laughs> company's ears. Uh, I don't know how much uh, cloud I have, but yeah. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, let's go back to your podcast. And you started it 10 years ago when the podcasting was pretty much, you know, non-existent. I mean, there were people podcasting, but not like it is today. So, I mean, what made you decide to do these two-minute tip of, of the weeks? And then, you know, how does 
has it evolved over the years? Well, I'm one of those old school people who still hosts her own podcast on her own website. So I, I do too. <laughs> yeah, right. So I have an XML page and iTunes and Stitcher and all those companies ping my XML page every week. Right. And, and that's that's where, you know, everyone's like, who hosts your podcast? I'm like, uh, me. I, yeah. um, <laughs> right. So you have that too. And, um, and it was kind of a slog to figure out how to do that at first. But I had a web guy who helps me out. And he, he uh, well, this was several web people ago, but I had help and it all worked out. And, um, and so the, you know, the podcast at the time, the trend was short and sweet. And so I did these quick two minute podcasts. And I thought that'll get more attention. Um, and I'll get my message through to people uh, more quickly. And it, it was easy to come up with a tip, you know, tear out of a magazine. And I'm referencing all of these, you know, popular sources of, of information like Mother Earth News and what was then Organic Gardening Magazine, which is now some sad little Rodale's Organic Life, which is a watered down version. And Rodale, you should be ashamed of yourselves. I agree. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, but I want Organic Gardening Magazine to come back and stop being like a Better Homes and Gardens or, or a, you know, Martha Stewart. I wanted a, a solid gardening magazine. So um, I would, ref anyway, I digress. I, <laughs> I would reference really cool tips that I would run across and uh, and then send those out to the world, um, hoping that it would make people, you know, oh, ooh, cool little thing to check out this week, like a little little candy for the week. Right, right. And you switched it up this year to interviews. Was there a reason behind that? Yeah. So I did the book that was the compilation of ten years of the podcast, and I and I honestly I fried. I I just burnt out on it, and I I was like, you know, it takes me sometimes all day to come up with a tip I haven't written. And that that's maybe I just set myself a goal that is unrealistic, but I tried in 10 years never to repeat a tip. Wow. <laughs> and that's, you know, 50 ish weeks, a year of a tip of the week. So it was a lot of tips uh, and to not repeat was, was a challenge. And so half the time I'd sit at my desk until one o'clock in the afternoon going, oh, no, I've written about that. No, no, written about that too. And it just, you know, walk the garden and try and figure out what to do. So the, I decided to let other people do be responsible for the content in switching this over to the the interview format. And, and I, I was like, I want to talk to my favorite people. So I got, and now I get to, and I, I got eight great interviews at the Heirloom Expo while oh, I was great. there. So those, stay tuned. Those <laughs> interviews going through. So those are going to be fun. No, I, I really like, um, I, I really like listening to the interview format and I like hearing from, well, you and the Root Simple um, folks. Um, yes. Just because you guys do some really cool things in Southern California that I don't hear anywhere else. And you guys, well, it's not just about gardening, but it's about like you're, you're the person you had on recently about recycling, um, had a lot of great content that, um, that I don't feel is getting shared. And so it's those little things that it's, it beats, it's beyond gardening really too. It's, it's ecological um, things that I've been enjoying. So I think where you're taking it is, is a good way. Thank you. So, and um, okay. So <laughs> let's go to your gardens. <laughs> you have two. Let's let, I don't know which one you want to start with. Um, you start your, your personal home garden at home, or if you want to go to your, the community garden. Um, I think that may be where you started gardening. So. Yeah. I started at the community garden in 1997 
and I became a board member at Ocean View Farms, which is where the garden is located. And it was a board was a board member. I'm still a board member. I'm now vice president. I was a phase rep for 18 years. And then I stepped down as a phase rep. And they said, do you want to still be on the board? I said, sure. I said, okay, we'll make you vice president. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there's that. But um, my plot is 15 by 15 feet. And I have four, four by four raised beds because my first gardening book was square foot gardening, of course. And I have a little row of a step that a terraced area in the front that is about two feet deep and 14 and a half feet long. Apparently my plot is shy of 15 by six inches or so. Um, that is just flowers that volunteer throughout the year. So I have alyssum and mostly nasturtiums volunteering uh, all year long in there. And then I have another little stretch that I plant some stuff in the ground, but the four by four beds, I rotate with annual vegetable crops Usually, well, right now I'm clearing everything out for fall planting because I don't know for your listeners, Los Angeles, the way that we garden, we put in our cool weather crops in October or November, depending on how hot it is in October. Those grow until about February, March. We take those out and then we put in the hot weather stuff, beans, corn, squash, tomatoes, peppers, etc. in March. And those go until about August or September, and then the garden looks like crap yeah. from, <laughs> from September through October until the new stuff goes in. And so everything's kind of dead right now and sad. And um, that's why the Heirloom Expo is timed so nicely uh, uh, as a like a little boost and um, inspiration to get moving for the fall season. Um, so I can tell you what I had growing in them. Sure, go for it. <laughs> so we had we had a, I, I had tomatoes. Uh, I love growing heirloom and open pollinated varieties of everything. I don't grow any hybrids, although someone, Tomato Mania's Scott Daig gave me a uh, Madame Marmonade tomato. It's a beefsteak tomato that does surprisingly well in coastal areas. So I got that. It was great. It was great. And it kind of took over my tomato patch. Um, uh, I do uh, eight different kinds of basil because uh, there's a lot of basil out there right. and I must have it all. Um, I, I did uh, zucchini, you know, summer squash. So zucchini, yellow crookneck and patty pan. And, um, and then I had a patch that was sort of leftover charred from fall and then some lettuces sprinkled in there and some volunteer cilantro and arugula. So there was that kind of stuff going on um, here at home. <laughs> I have perennial kale it's called tree kale or tree collars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those I pick all year long. Uh, I have corn that's brown and dry and ready to pull out and compost. We have a shredder. So we shred stuff and put it in the compost bin as biomass. It's carbon for the compost. So it's fantastic. Um, we have sunflowers that are also finished. These squirrels have gotten their fill. And <laughs> so those are coming down and those will be shredded. And then uh, I just planned out my fall garden yesterday. So I'm very excited about what's coming soon. I have a, a, a small patch of perennial alfalfa as a high nitrogen ingredient for my compost bin and to feed the chickens every once in a while. And, uh, and then I've slowly taken over the rest of the yard. I have eight beds, by the way, for the home garden is four four by four beds and four two by four beds. And the two by four beds have perennial crops like strawberries, alfalfa, and tree kale. And, um, and then I've stretched the yard of I've, I've taken over every corner that I can get direct sunlight in 
and I've got um, sweet potatoes and pots with more tomatoes because what I grow is not enough. You have yeah. to have more, right? <laughs> so they're paper pots. You know the pulp pots that yeah. you can buy mm-hmm. online? I think it's Greenhouse, uh, Green Warehouse. Oh, I forget. I'm sorry. Um, but they sell 16-inch paper pots that I bought. And I, I love them. And I can reuse them for several years before they degrade into the soil. Okay. Uh, and I'm growing some watermelons and I have blackberries. I have four fruit trees, most of which are in trees. I mean, in pots because... Uh, we don't have our our permanent landscaping sorted out quite yeah. yet. After eleven <laughs> years in this house, we're still not there. Anyway, uh, so that's that's what's going on. And then we have a hive of bees and uh, and five chickens. So you have a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I want to go back to the community garden. Yeah. Um, I was reading; it's like one of the oldest community gardens and probably one of the most popular and sought after ones. Um, can you talk about a little bit about the history of the community garden? And um, I mean, since you're on the board and things like that, um, maybe even some community garden etiquette for people who want to be in a community garden. Sure. Uh, Ocean View Farms is um, what came about in 1976 and it is 500 plots on about six and a half acres. And it shares a, uh, property that is owned by the Department of Water and Power, and we're under the jurisdiction of of uh, and Parks. And the top half of the flat level of the land is the Venice Little League baseball fields. And then we have the slope. So we're on a slope. We face the ocean. We are um, a couple miles from the ocean, but we still get heavy coastal influences like powdery mildew and all of the stuff that comes with coastal gardening, like better to grow cherry tomatoes than beef steaks because we just don't get the heat that they need. Okay. Um, the, the garden is highly coveted, I think mostly because you don't have to be a resident of Mar Vista, which is where it's located to have a plot. Whereas Santa Monica city of Santa Monica, all of their community gardens, you have to have, you have to be a resident of Santa Monica. So people come to us okay. and we also have a, a more of a turnover because we have 500 plots. Um, but it's a glorious, glorious oasis in the middle of Los Angeles, and uh, and I'm happy. I'm happy to have found it. I literally drove by twenty something years ago, saw the painted, hand painted sign out in front. I was like, "Pull over!" Because <laughs> back then, you there was no email, right? There was no internet. You had to send a letter to the po- to the PO box address. <laughs> And, and I should say every plot has its own mailbox, not, you know, it's, it's a, a, a post office box, but I mean, it's not a, it's not an official post office box, right. but it's, everyone has a mailbox and that's how we delivered communications to one another for years until internet came about. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty, that's amazing. That's pretty cool. Yeah. When, well, I think one of the things that struck me by looking at it, it reminds me so much of the allotment gardens in the UK that, yeah. you know just the scope and the size and uh, the community gardens I've been a part of here, you know, you're lucky to get like one single little bed, right. uh, but you guys can make, you have a decent amount of space to make a couple different beds. So. Yeah. Um, the, the plots are 15 by 15. So they, you can get a lot in there and some of the plots are long and narrow. Instead, those are the ones lining the perimeter of the garden. At one point they were designated as corn plots where, because because there was an issue with shading neighbors' gardens, 
they had special plots assigned for people who wanted to grow corn. That's when there were, there were no people on the waiting list. Our waiting list is about four years long. So I tell people, get on it, forget yeah. about it. And someday you'll get that magical phone call and you'll be very excited. Wow. That's just crazy. Yeah. So how, how often do you go and tend to that plot? Is it something you just do once a week or? I, oh, back in the day, before I owned my own business, I was there three times a week. Uh, but now I, I'm not there as frequently. I do have a neighbor. We trade off watering gardens for each other. So we're checking in on it regularly. Okay. But, um, but I think, you know, we tell everybody who gets a plot, you have to come at least once a week. You can't just leave it. Right. <laughs> Everything right. Will right. And then you're just wasting that space for somebody else. So. It's true. And we have very, very sandy soil. So water drains out of the water and nutrients drain out pretty quickly. Okay. So you have to get there in water. Okay. All right. Well, that's amazing. Now, how about back at your, your house? You said you've been there for about 11 years yes. and um, you're still figuring things out. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I We've been about six years and we're still like have some things we need to work out. So uh-huh. yeah. Um, you talk about you do a biointensive method. Can you talk about that style of gardening and what it entails? Sure. It's, it's part of, it's a big component of what I teach. Uh, I use a combination between square foot gardening, which is Mel Bartholomew's tome that he wrote. He had a PBS series back in the seventies on how to grow intensively in by, you know, square foot by square foot. And it borrows the idea from French intensive where the, you know, if you think about how many crops you can get out of one square foot in your garden, each, you know, along throughout the season, you might get, you know, three or four crops at the, if, and if you're really on it, you know, as soon as something comes out, you plant something new in that same space. Biointensive gardeners, French, I'm sorry, French intensive gardeners got up to nine crops out of the same space every season. Wow. Yeah. So they're really working the soil. They're really adding a lot of, a lot of organic matter and, um, and never ever leaving bare soil. So that, uh, is French intensive. And then there's biodynamic, which is also another intensive method where they're, they're really using uh, like a closed looped system where they have animals on the property and those, those animals contribute to the manure. I mean, the manure contributes to the compost and it becomes fertilizer for the garden and the waste goes back to the animals and that kind of stuff. Um, so between those two principles and square foot gardening and a, another f- functional um strategy or method called uh, Grow Biointensive, which is was a book written by John Jevons 40-something uh, years ago. Um, and I got a chance to interview him at the Heirloom Expo recently. So this, we have a really long podcast coming up about awesome. him. <laughs> uh, he explains the whole thing. It's, uh, it's, his ideas are based on the fact that we have an ever-increasing population and an ever-reducing amount of friable, farmable ag- uh, land. And we need to get to the point where we can use less land to grow all that we need to live off of and make clothes out of and, and have oils for. So it's getting to the point where it's, it's a crisis because of climate change and the, the desertification plus flooding and all the other things that are happening that are make it places unlivable. So this is, this is something that people are like, Oh, gardening is fun, but it's actually this life-saving thing. And so it becomes a really different message when you start focusing on biointensive gardening as a, a way to actually survive. Right. Um, and, and I, I find that is an important message to relay to people. Uh, but 
the overall terminology for biointensive gardening is growing a lot of stuff in a small amount of space. And so you're using things like offset planting rows or hexagonal planting spacing. You're really amending the soil in grow biointensive. You're double digging. That's French intensive techniques where you're double digging to a depth of 24 inches. You're adding amendments that deep. And then, then, and I got him to say this, that yes, you switch to no-till once your soil is in good shape. Thank you, John. Yes. (laughs) So, uh, so, Um, The idea is you can't just clear your raised beds and plant intensively without taking care of the soil first. So you'll find that you'll get lower yields if you do that. So that it's a whole system where you're really focusing on soil health and vitality and fertility and then planting closely together in a way that is... um, that actually produces more soil or more, you know, more topsoil on your property and you're, and composting is a big part of that too. You're growing biomass, you get the harvest, but the biomass goes back into the system. Right. So it's uh, that's why like the corn stalks and the sunflower stalks are going to get shredded and put back into the compost bin that will eventually become soil for the garden. Right. And that's my <laughs> long winded answer. Sorry about that. No, I like it. I like it. I mean, I think most people had a good idea, would have a good idea about it, but um, it's definitely above and beyond the, than the, the scope of, uh, at least for I understood it to be so <laughs> mel- yeah. melding of uh, a couple different methods uh, together. Yeah, you talk about a rabbit hole. That is a rabbit hole. Yeah, for years and never come back. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Let's talk about your compost. I see you do a couple different types of compost. You have a you know kind of a hands off the cold kind of compost, and then you do a pretty good hot composting too, right? Yes. So we have what most people do in their garden, which is. Uh, a cold composting, which is kind of a misnomer because the pile does get a little bit hot, but it's not right. hot enough to kill diseases or weed seeds. So it's called cold composting. That's when you're adding material over time and building it up. And then, you know, every once in a while, turning the pile and skimming off the stuff at the bottom that's finished. Um, active batch thermal composting, on the other hand, is hot composting where you build the bo- the pile all at once with all, you have all the materials on hand and and it's there's you know formulas that you can follow i have some in gardening for geeks and it's the idea of um having you know a lot of carbon materials and a lot of nitrogen materials and then a little bit of high nitrogen materials which are usually like uh manures or alfalfa things that kick up the heat those are the mm-hmm. things that make compost piles hot and so those things you put them all in together someone is standing there watering the whole pile as each layer is being added. And so you're using a lot of water in the beginning to build the pile, but you only add water when you turn the pile, which I only do twice. And then the rest of the time it sits there. So I'm, you're monitoring the temperature. I've got a long thermometer for composting, you know, purposes only, not using it in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and as soon as the temperature peaks to, you know, 150 I've gotten it up to 150 consistently. I think once I've gotten it to 160, which is like, da-da. But yeah. honestly, you only really need to get it up to 130 to kill weed seeds and diseases. So you don't have to get it screaming hot. Um, that that will, you know, you'll start killing off microbes at higher temperatures. So be careful. And right. if you're like the guy, Tim Dundon, the guru of doo-doo in Altadena, he has had his compost piles spontaneously combust. So oh, my out. gosh. Yeah. Um, folklore here on the West side. Um, so, 
uh, the, the piles are monitored. And as soon as the temperature peaks, you turn it and then you watch it. The temperature builds up again, takes another few days to build back up. And then you turn it again. And some people turn it several times uh, or more than several times. I, I'll turn it twice and then it'll sit in my last compost bin. Uh, Cause I, I have a three bin system, but I have a four bin system. <laughs> I found one. I found another bio stack on, on the curb. And I was like, they don't even know what they have. It's like free. And they had a sign on it said free. And I took it. So I have four. So we start in the first bin, we turn to the second, turn to the third, and then turn to the fourth. And it sits there until it's completely broken down and looks like soil and you can't recognize anything else. Wow. Yeah. And you water the pile as you turn it each time. And that's all the moisture that's really needed unless it gets super hot. Um, but the microbes are alive and happy and breaking things down. So how long is that process taking? I mean, is this a couple months? I mean, you know, my cold stuff is taking six to eight months, I would say. Yeah. And, and you know, honestly, if you even in a hot pile, you want to give it six months to break down four on the earliest. But honestly, six months is a really good amount of time before you'll get uh, that really like almost not having to sift it at all. That kind okay. of compost. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like in two months, you're going to have fresh compost. <laughs> no. And that's, that's the mis No, I think that's the mistake people make is they think they're going to have, cause there are a lot of uh, compost bin advertisers who say you compost in 21 days. And yeah, if you know what you're doing, maybe, but honestly, just give it time. Compost, compost happens. That's yeah. my bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah. Compost happens. You just let it, let it do what it does. Right. I like that. Like that. Mm. Um, okay. Oh, your alfalfa crop. I'm very interested in this because you said it's a completely dedicated bed to this alfalfa that just strictly goes to your compost. Um, is that, yeah. that, is that where to read that correct? Okay. Can That's you talk correct. about that a little bit? And I guess um, what's the tie being for the season for that? Uh, so I'm growing a winter dormant alfalfa and there are other types of alfalfa, but this one is perennial and uh, when it gets to about 15 to 17 inches tall, you cut it down to about, you know, an inch or two tall and then it regrows. And I only have a two by four bed that is dedicated to that. And it gives me just enough punch in my compost bin each time I build one. And, uh, and, and the chickens love it too. So, although I have some older chickens who are like, what's that? I'm not eating that. It's kind of, it's weird. So, uh, the alfalfa is considered a high nitrogen ingredient and it is, you know, if you put it in a pile and left it there, it would turn slimy and, uh, within a couple of days. And that is the bacterial glues starting to break it down. And it, it, it adds, uh, what I would call a component that helps aggregate soil particles together. Those bacterial glues help hold soil particles together. So it's a great ingredient if you have really sandy soil. Okay. It's going to help build up your, your, your soil structure down the line. Right. Okay. That sounds yeah. helpful. I'm definitely, I'm definitely more interested in doing it for cover crops next year. Um, oh, yeah. We have never really done it, done any kind of cover crops in our beds. And I feel like they could use a boost of something. Yeah. And it does fix nitrogen. So it's a nitrogen fixing ingredient that, um, you know, pulls atmospheric nitrogen out of the sky, fixes it into the roots. So if you do cut it down uh, completely or turn it into the soil, you're going to release that nitrogen over time. So that'll be helpful. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I like, I like the components of both of it. So yeah, cool. 
Um, something else I was reading on your 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 blog is that you use something called Trex decking for your raised beds, and yeah. I would like to know a little bit more about that for myself personally because we're going to have to redo our our beds soon. Yes, so I made the decision when we when we bought this house uh, to use Trex decking. It's a composite lumber. It's made from recycled plastic packaging and wood pulp, so it doesn't use new materials. It uses recycled materials to make a new product, which I think is a great idea. And the cool thing about it, it is one of the only composite lumbers, at least at the time, it was the only composite lumber that allows for direct soil contact. Uh, there may be others now, but I know if you walk into Home Depot, you'll find veranda on the shelves and that's a composite lumber, but it does not allow for direct soil contact. You have to use pressure treated lumber to attach the decking to the ground. So you, okay. you can't have, it can't, you can't pour soil uh, up against it or else it'll fall apart. Huh. But Trex doesn't do that. And I've had these beds for 11 years. It was the first thing we did. <laughs> like, yeah. Forget anything else in the yard that we're building the raised beds. So we put the raised beds in 11 years ago. They look exactly the same as the day I put them in. They may fade and weather a little in terms of color, but they need, they never need sanding, painting, staining, and they don't degrade. And they're guaranteed, it's guaranteed for 25 years, I believe. Um, but I, I don't expect it to wear out anytime sooner than, you know, 30 years. Right. Okay. Yeah. That sounds amazing because let's see, ours has been in uh, about five years. And while I say that, you know, the long sides, the main boards of it are doing okay. It's really those, um, those anchor corners that are just rotting away like crazy. Yeah. Um, and I actually don't use corner posts in my designs. I just take, we'd use three inch deck screws and drill them in. Um, and, and then I use stakes. Uh, they're called surveyor stakes. They're metal flat uh, steel stakes that have holes drilled in them on the diagonal and I'll put one of those every two feet on the inside of the boards along the lengths of the beds. And that keeps them from bowing or warping. And so you don't need the corner, uh, the okay. corner en enhancements, which my beef with those is that's four inches of space I could be using to grow stuff. So I don't right. want, I don't want those there. So you use the treks for your clients too, or, I mean, I guess it's maybe an option for them. For It is an option. Yeah. Okay. Price wise, it's about, a th I don't know what the pricing is anymore. Actually, I haven't checked in a long time, but it is about a third more than your, your good quality, you know, cedar or redwood. So you'll spend the money on the product, but you won't have to work on it forever. <laughs> you won't have to, you won't have to paint it or stain it or hire anyone to do that. So you're saving on labor way down the line. Right. Okay. Okay. And you said you have chickens and bees. Maybe we can touch on them a little bit. I know you just relocated um, a feral hive to your to your hive here because I think your bees left or they died or something. Yeah, uh, uh, we suspect poisoning. We had a pile of dead bees outside our hive and we uh, we noticed it. And then within a couple of weeks, they went queenless and there was like maybe a handful of bees left inside the hive. So we were sad because that was our five-year-old colony they were doing really well but they had they had been suffering i guess from poisoning so it took them down and then the very day that we had our beekeeping mentor from honeylove.org come out and and uh work with us 
to inspect the empty hive and just kind of diagnose what happened, uh, I got a call from a friend in Pasadena who had a tree hive. I mean, there was a, there was a swarm sitting in her trees, her tree outside in front of her apartment. So we went out there, got the new colony, brought them home, introduced them to the cleaned out hive and boom, we're up to three levels now. And they are filling up those honey frames like crazy. So we probably won't harvest this year, but we're letting them get nice and established. Right. So what do you, what kind of poison do you think? Just somebody sprayed a pesticide nearby or they? Yeah. And it's very possible that somebody was spraying some neonicotinoid on their lawn or they were spraying for bugs. You know, if there are a lot of people who have exterminators come by and spray for roaches or ants or anything like that. And those, you know, uh, I was, I was on a panel discussion on bees and pollinators and someone from the audience raised their hand and said, you know, it only takes five bees to be infected to kill an entire hive. So if five bees went and sat on a piece of, you know, on a clover flower in someone's lawn that had been sprayed with something um, and bring it and they brought it back, it can, it can kill a whole hive. So yeah, I can't emphasize enough people Stop don't spraying. Spray. Don't spray anything. Everything is connected. We are one. So that's really a big lesson to, to share with everyone. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was kind of amazed by that. That's a crazy, just like five bees can kill a hive. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. So maybe we can talk about um, any kind of failures or big lessons that you've learned over the years that uh, you've, you have know, big, I'm sure like every gardener, we have so this many. thing. So, so many. Yeah. Um, I, I know one of my, one of my big, big failures, the stinkiest failure was watering my potato patch after the foliage had died back. Uh, you get this an entire bed of anaerobic putrid, disgusting, garbagey smelling potato. Yeah. Really bad. So don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Cut back those, cut back that watering. Uh, as your foliage is dying back. Um, I've made, I think, you know, there's, it's been so long since I've been a new gardener, but the rookie mistake that everyone makes is planting more than one zucchini plant. Uh, I don't even know why they sell them in six packs. Nobody needs more than one zucchini plant. I'm telling you. (laughs) Um, I have also, uh, gosh, what else have I done? That You know, I'm always experimenting in my yard. Every year I grow three or four varieties I've never grown before, some which are probably not supposed to be grown here. So I'm always trying things out. So I fail a lot. Um, I grew a bunch of seeds from Monticello. I went to Thomas Jefferson's garden last year instead of going to the Heirloom Expo. And I brought home a bunch of seeds. And I think only only the tennis ball uh, lettuce did well in my garden. I brought home some squash that didn't do well and some beans that didn't germinate because the seeds were pretty old. They were on a free table, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think um, that's the, you know, keep experimenting and don't mind failure. That's how we learn. That's really right. my, my big thing. Right. Yeah. Maybe we can um, wrap up with any resources or I mean, any other tips of the week that you might want to share um, <laughs> for, for listeners other than, you know, check out your, your tip of the week podcast. <laughs> resources. There are so many out there. Uh, I, I'm really into, I've been reading all the back issues of mother earth news that have been piling up in my, in my, um, iPad. Cause I get a digital subscription. 
they have really reliable resources for gardening tips. It's mostly for places that get snow, not so much for my area where we don't. Uh, but that's every gardening book on the planet, which right. is why I wrote Gardening for Geeks, because it's for people who don't get snow. It's like that lower band of, um, of and climates climates that have warm winters. Um, and, and I think, oh, tip, what tip do I want to share? Oh, <laughs> so it's tomato season. It's, you know, ending in tomato season. And I get a lot of emails about like something's eating my whatever. Um, I want to point people in the direction of the fact that tomato hornworms are blacklight reactive. Meaning if you have a blacklight and you go out at night and you wave it at your tomato plants, you'll be able to find the hornworms because they glow in the dark. Interesting. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. I did a YouTube video about it. Uh, and unfortunately, my blacklight flatlined as I was trying to demonstrate it on video. We took the pictures showing the hornworm under the blacklight beforehand. But then when I went to shoot the video, the blacklight just fizzled out and died. So, uh, but it's, it's a, you can get a blacklight for pretty cheap and, or very expensive. I bought like a $60 black light because I wanted one that wasn't going to die on me. Oh, yeah. And it's like oh. a mag light. It's like, <laughs> wom, wom. you don't want to look directly into it. It's a really bad idea. Uh, but it's, um, you know, you can get black lights out there for inexpensive uh, cash and, and just take it out there at night and you'll have a lot of fun picking hornworms off your tomatoes. That's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do know the, I don't really have a big problem with hornworms, but the one I saw last year, I saw it on one side of the bed and I came around the other side and I was like, where did you go? You blend uh -huh. it, they blend in so well. Yeah, they are camouflaged really, really well. Oh, and, and I'll just say this, that if you do find a tomato hornworm and it has what looks like little rice granules on the back of it, um, leave it there because it's been parasitized and it now is breeding. It's, it's a host for these paras parasite, um, sorry, these parasitic wasps that eat other hornworms or, or parasitize other hornworms. I think I got that right. Anyway, yeah, so no, you're right. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to see like white grains along the back of the hornworm and just leave it there. Cause that's the perfect solution to your problem. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And do you want to wrap up with where people can find you online? I know you're in all sorts of different places, but you know, mainly sure. your main website. So the website is gardennerd.com. It's one N one word, G A R D E N E R D. Dot com. Uh, we are Garden Nerd One on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, the Garden Nerd YouTube channel is pretty easy to find if you just look up Garden Nerd. Awesome. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge, and also for just all the cool things you do online. And I, I took a deep dive into your blog, and I was pretty impressed. So, oh, thank you so much. I'm I'm happy to be on your on your podcast, and uh, happy to share with everyone what's going on. All right. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>